Well, we come to the concluding part of our story of Esther, and it is remarkable. We get used to it as the Lord's people. Uh, the stories of the Lord's of in Scripture, and uh, but so often these are remarkable stories, amazing stories, and so we come to the passage tonight at the end of Esther, and we'll be tying our thoughts up. Uh, on this whole series. So it's Esther 9, we're going to read from verse 16. Esther 9 from verse 16. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahaz's Ueris to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called those days Purim, after the name Pure. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation, every family, every province and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahaz-Uerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim, at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their feasting and lamenting 
So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Well, as we come to the conclusion of Esther, there's a lovely reminder in Romans why we should study these historical accounts of God's dealings with his people. We read in Romans 15, verse 4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience or patient waiting and comfort or encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patient waiting and encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. I'm sure we've found the truth of that as we've been looking at Esther deliberately there that we through patient waiting and encouragement might have hope in these days last time with David we looked at the remarkable reversal in the prospects for the Jews throughout the provinces if you remember so we have four headings tonight the first two are very short they're just way of recap now four R's reversal rejoicing remembrance representative Reversal, rejoicing, remembrance and representative. So the first one, the reversal. Well, we've seen how the powers of darkness through Haman had brought about a decree that would result in the total destruction of the Jewish people throughout the whole empire. And for the young people that are here tonight that haven't been following this, this empire stretched across virtually the whole known world at that time, included Israel, including right down to Egypt, right across to India. Huge empire. And this decree would have meant that every single Jew throughout the whole of the empire, the whole known world, would have had to be killed on that particular day. Certain death for every single Jew. This very people through whom God had chosen to bring forth the Messiah, the one who would redeem a people to God from every tongue and nation. So you can see Satan behind this, can't you? He wanted to kill off any prospect of the Messiah coming. The date for this disaster had been set by casting the lot, and the date for the genocide had been fixed for the month Adar, which was virtually a whole year away from when this took place. Now, that's strange. Obviously, they weren't impatient. They obviously were that superstitious that they wanted to keep to this casting of the lot. Now, what would you have done if you'd been a Jew? There was nowhere to run to. No point running to the next country, France, Germany, anywhere. It was all going to be the same thing. What would you have done? To get the emotional turmoil of these Jewish people in some kind of chronological perspective, I just want to draw our attention to the apparent gap of at least a couple of months between the end of chapter 7 where we read that the king's wrath abated, and then chapter 8, when this new initiative to save the Jews was instituted. So there was at least a couple of months, if not three months, when the Jews, as far as a Jew was concerned, there was certain death. Certain death. Put yourself in that situation. Certain death. Maybe in the last war, Jews in general may not have fully comprehended what Hitler had in mind for them, but many would have done, and they would have faced the prospect with fear. We imagine what it was like 
to be a Jewish family at that time with children, with a wife. I imagine that parents, for a start, would have decided, well, we're not going to bring any more children into the world. It's pointless. We're all going to be facing death in a few months' time. Absolute awfulness. Now, we know the rest of the story. They didn't. And if I'd left this story here and said to you or said to a class of children, finish this story with some kind of good ending, I wonder what people would have come up with. Anyway, they couldn't have bettered God's plan. We saw then among the Jews there was great mourning and three days of fasting. And although not mentioned here, there must have been real repentance towards God from many of them. Then we saw how the one that Haman had tried to destroy, Mordecai, the Jew, now has been given authority with the king's signet ring to send letters through the empire authorising the Jews to defend themselves and destroy those who may be seeking uh, to destroy them. Now people often worry about this a bit, wasn't it a bit cruel or unkind? But we need to get this in perspective. The Jews were authorised to kill those who were threatening them, who were going to kill them. And they would know well by now the people in their area or their village uh, who would be wanting to do that. They were also authorised to take plunder, but they didn't. So this letters went out, authorising the Jews to defend themselves. And you know what happened to Haman? Haman, who built that gallows to hang Mordecai the Jew, he ended being hung on it himself. And so nine months later, we saw that great reversal. All the Jews took up arms to protect themselves, didn't take any plunder. This wasn't revenge, this was defence. It was self-protection. So that was the reversal that we heard about last time. The rejoicing. And I'll read this passage now again from chapter 9, verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. They rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. There was no gloating over their revenge or taking of plunder, just rejoicing at their, their salvation. Their salvation. It seemed certain death, but now that had been overturned. So now what? We've had the reversal, we've had the rejoicing. Those are the two first brief R's. Third, remembrance. Mordecai, very wisely, seems to be quite prominent in this story, doesn't he? Mordecai recognised the significance of the great deliverance and the great need for the Jews to remember this great deliverance. Western society also recognises events in history, doesn't it? Remember November the 5th, remember, remember. And then we have Armistice Day, lest we forget. 
So these are good things where we are made to remember, and particularly from our viewpoint, God's preservation in past days. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far to establish that they should celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as a month which was termed from sorrow to joy for them, from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and of joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. What a lovely combination. Feasting, joy, presence to one another and thinking of the poor, giving to the poor. And those characteristics still are kept by the Jews today. This feast that Mordecai uh, inaugurated uh, very wisely, this remembrance feast, is still kept by the Jews today, very closely to the way it was inaugurated. And this obligation was reinforced by a second letter, this time from the Queen, as if Mordecai's authority, although he had the signet ring of the king, Esther the Queen also sent a second letter confirming these arrangements. But we read in that chapter something remarkable. It, well, it's not surprising, really. This wasn't just a top-down requirement. It wasn't just, now, oh, this is what you've got to do. You've got to be happy on so-and-so day. You've got to laugh, you've got to smile, you've got to feast, you've got to rejoice. They wanted to do it. They were ob obligated to do it. They obligated themselves to do it. They just couldn't help rejoicing over this great salvation. We read in verse 27, the Jews established and it opposed, imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate those two days every year according to the written instructions. Now in this day of entitlement amongst the world in general, this whole idea of obligation or feeling we ought to do something or keep something up, even though we generally want to, but maybe not always want to, but Jews don't have any problem with that. It's just part of their culture. They will keep things, religiously we might say, up. And this is a good reminder to them uh, we ourselves find, don't we, so often that just the fact of doing something because we know we ought to do it, there's often a blessing in it, even coming into the Lord's house sometimes. We know perhaps on a Thursday evening we're feeling tired and we think, well, we ought to go, we know we're going to get a blessing, so we bring ourselves and we get the blessing. Um, so the Jews have no problem with this sense of obligation. Derek Prime briefly describes the annual celebration of Purim like this. I found all sorts of descriptions, and you can look it up yourself. This is quite a brief one. Every year, Jews celebrate this deliverance in the festival of Purim. It is in the spring, a month before Passover. For Jews, especially Jewish children, it is very much a fun day when they dress up as the different characters in the story of Esther. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, there is hissing and booing. The stamping of feet and the waving of rattles. I don't know if you've heard at football matches, they used to, I haven't seen them so much these days. They've got these whirly things that you go around like this and they make an awful racket, clicking noise. Uh, well, they use those. So if you went to a feast of Purim with Jews, you'd find them having these things. And every time Haman's name is mentioned, these are ways around to drown out his name. 
There is hissing and booing and the stamping of feet and the waving of these rattles to drown out his name. Whereas every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, there is cheering and shouting and clapping. I'm not so sure about this bit. Pastries called Haman's ears are eaten. Children take gifts of food to the poor and the day is spent in a party atmosphere. On the evening before the feasting, the family would have gathered to hear the Megillah read. Now that's the Jewish name for the book of Esther. So on the evening before Purim, the whole of the story is read to the family because you know for the Jews it's very important that the whole culture and the history and the teaching, God's word is handed down to the children. And this is maintained by the reading of the book every time, every year before the Feast of Purim. The book of Esther is read. And generally speaking, I'm told, if you look across most universities in America and in this country, you will find that at the time of Purim, that the student body, the Jewish student body within each university, has an open meeting for people to go along and hear the Megillah read as part of their Purim celebrations. So there was remembrance. Remembrance. Very important to remember God's goodness to them. Then the final are the representative. Now we read these lovely words in chapter 10 from verse 2. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, <coughs> seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Now if you've been a Jew living in Shushan or anywhere else in the kingdom, what happened at Purim what happened on the month Adar wouldn't have changed much for you wouldn't have changed much for you would it really you were still in a hostile country you were still genuinely hated by the people you were living with you know your God Jehovah was hated and still you're still in a foreign land things are still a bit dodgy for you not too certain for you and the people locally want to mistreat you perhaps Nothing much is going to be done about you by the Persians. But you've got someone in the court. You've got someone in authority who's keeping an eye over things and keeping an eye on you and making sure that you're looked after. We read, Mordecai, in this position of authority, was seeking the goods of his people. So you had someone in high office who would be and hear your voice. And this is what we often lack in this country, isn't we? When people are being treated unjustly or not getting what they should be getting, there's nobody to speak up for them, nobody to stand up for them. So they had this representative in a position of power and authority, what comfort this must would have given. And we've had other instances, haven't we, in Scripture? Joseph, for example, a man God put in authority, to care for his people. Daniel, very, very similar. So, a couple of applications. 
couple of obvious applications. I'm sure you've already worked them out. So our remembrance. Have we, like the Jews, really grasped the reality of our destiny by nature? Have we, like the Jews, really grasped our destiny by nature? We each, we each, just like those Jews, have an appointment with death. We each have an appointment with death. We have an appointment with God's judgment. And have we managed to convey this reality to our children? I sometimes think quite, I suppose it's a bit nostalgically, but if you've been out in the country or out in Wales, you'll often see the local church with a graveyard by it. Now I think that's a lovely picture because it reminds us that these two go hand in hand. That in the graveyard isn't separated, the cemetery isn't separated from the life of God's people. It's part of it. And as you walk around the graveyard, you walk around Brook Street Cemetery, you'll see gravestones. Edgar Wood, the date he died, pastor of this church. You'll see another gravestone, Ron Hawkins. You'll see another gravestone, other members of this church. Go around Welling Cemetery, Hillview Cemetery, you'll see Ruth Orchard's gravestone. And in a sense, those gravestones, I know it doesn't matter to God where, where people are, what's happened to you, you can be drowned in the sea or cremated or whatever, but as far as humanly speaking, it's lovely to think in a sense that that gravestone is marking where Ron Hawkins' resurrected body is going to come from. His name's there. He still exists. His remembrance still remains. But as you walk round that graveyard, you won't find it. But imagine you find a blank tombstone and it's got your name on it. Your name. But it hasn't got a date yet. But one day there will be a date. Because just like those Jews, we face the reality that we do have a appointment with death. That's very serious. But have we grasped our amazing deliverance? Our amazing deliverance. Paul shouts, O oh death, where is your sting? O oh grave, where is your victory? The sting of death for us, if we trust in God, has been removed. That victory has been won. Such is the joy of a new convert who has really faced the despair, despair and reality of death and judgment when they know the death sentence against them has been lifted and has been borne by Christ. And if we're tonight trusting in Jesus Christ, we know, just like those Jews know, knew, that the death sentence has been lifted. The death sentence no longer applies. And you and I, for you and I, trusting in Jesus, Passing from this life to the next is just a doorway. We pass through and immediately are with Christ in glory. So the reality of death, have we grasped that? And if we have, have we grasped the wonderful deliverance that is ours through Jesus Christ? Now Mordecai in his wisdom recognise the significance of what has taken place and for future generations to be continually reminded of it. In the light of our great salvation, surely we have great obligations should burn on our heart. A deep, loving obligation 
to meet together and remember the Sabbath day as a day of rejoicing on the way the tables were turned on Satan and his plans for us. Totally turned upside down when Christ rose from the dead. A deep loving obligation to meet around the Lord's table and rejoice at the wonderful rescue that our Mordecai achieved for us. Yes, it was determined against him he should die, but our Mordecai rose again and lives. Now I'm not suggesting that the children turn up with masks at our gatherings or start stamping their seat when their feet when Satan is mentioned. I'm sure one or two would be happy to. Um, but let's get in touch with the reality of our great reversal. Our great reversal. Over the Feast of Purim, we can write one word, remember. Over the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day, we can write the same word, remember. And then our representative. In Esther 10 verse 3, we've read those lovely words. Mordecai was seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. We too are in a spiritually hostile culture, like those Jews were. Even as a local church, we feel our weakness, our frailty. But we have our Mordecai. We have the Lord Jesus, to whom all power and authority has been given, who is seeking the good of his people. Our representative in high places. Just meditate on that. Jesus Christ in the highest position of authority seeking the good of his people. We have that lovely glimpse of the heart of Christ in that great high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me that they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. We have a representative caring for us, praying for us. And as we have friends tonight in hospital, unwell, whatever our situation is tonight, we have one in high places who is seeking the good of his people. He's seeking the good of you. He's seeking the good of me in every situation, through every situation. And we need to just remember that. Truly remembering our great salvation will fan the flames of our faith into a fire that both warms and empowers. Let's pray. Well, gracious God, as we just come to you at the close of this lovely book, Lord, we are amazed, almighty God, at the providence we've seen right through this book, the way you overruled the evil workings of the powers of darkness and indeed brought salvation for your people. But Lord, we thank you we have a greater salvation. Not a salvation that depends on one man who's going to die. But we have a salvation that depends on the ever-living God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who even appears in heaven for us and is seeking the good of his people. Oh Lord, warm our hearts with that thought this evening, we pray.